0: Hey, everyone, this is Eric Wright. and the host for the show. You're going to be listening to a really cool conversation with Colin McIntosh. Colin's the founder of a company called Sheets and Giggles. Not only is it a really wicked cool pun, but this Denver-based company is, in fact, one of the coolest and fastest-growing brands around U.S. betting. I know, that's crazy. You're thinking, what does this have to do with the Disco Posse podcast? It actually is an amazing founder story. It's a story about growth, how to scale. We're going to talk about crowdfunding and really what it takes to run a a company that's based and founded in sustainability. This is for people, for products, and the earth. Really, really cool. So great story. Enjoy the show.
1: To the disco balls in
0: All right, And we're live. We're as, as live as you can get. Live to tape, live to video, live to whatever. No, not even live to anything. It's, yeah, I used to say live to tape, but I don't think tape exists anymore, at least not in, in, <laughs> in the next century. Uh, so, extremely happy. This is going to be a fun one. Uh, I've got uh, Colin McIntosh 80. here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah we, we, we can only hope so. Uh, Colin, you've done something really neat and in a variety of ways. There's so much that I'd love to explore. I could literally put aside seven hours, and I'm sure that I would still run out of time in the stuff that I'd love to share (laughs) with my listeners. Uh, But you are founder and CEO Sheets and Giggles. We're going to talk about what what that is, (laughs) how how it got started. Uh, First of all, A++ for the best possible name. I always love a good play on words. So, Colin quickly so how did you get started where did you come from before and and let's well I'll give you the what's the elevator pitch on Sheets and Giggles?
1: Well I guess those are three different questions so, so the start with the uh and, and thanks for having me by the way Eric I, I'm really appreciative of you spending the time talking to me um so uh first and foremost Sheets and Giggles is not just a pun um it is an admittedly good pun uh but it is also the name of my betting company and so basically we sell uh, bed sheets, duvet covers, pillowcases, comforters made not out of cotton, out of bamboo or polyester, but rather out of eucalyptus trees. Uh, and so we sell eucalyptus sheets. The technical name for the product is called Lyocell, um, which is a form of cellulosic rayon, which means that it's made from wood pulp that's uh, dried out and turned into a fiber, which is then turned into a yarn, which is then turned into the softest fabric you've ever felt in your life. And so we started the company in October, 2017. We began shipping. It took us a whole year to get to the point where we were shipping in October, 2018. Uh, so we've only been shipping for about a year and a half. And since then uh, we've shipped tens of thousands of units. Um, we grew in 2019, 3X from 2018, or 4X almost. Um, and we've, you know, we only sell on our website, SheetsTheGoals.com, on Amazon. Um, and we have over 2000 reviews now, 4.8 stars, uh, really thrilled by the public reception to the brands of the company. Um, and it's been a wild ride and, and it's been a pretty fast upswing. Um, and I just kind of find myself holding on for dear life and, uh, the beauty of the product itself, just to touch on that very briefly in the beginning. So people understand about the eucalyptus Lyocell is that not only is it softer and more breathable than cotton, so it's the best fabric for hot sleepers but it's also uh going to be very sustainable and so our sheets use up to 96% less water than cotton sheets no insecticides no pesticides about 30% less energy um and each sheet set estimated uh saves about 5 years worth of the average person's drinking water compared to cotton sheets so we've estimated that we've saved literally hundreds of thousands of years of drinking water in just such a short period of time um and we're really excited to to turn that into millions of years and we're excited to um, kind of show people that there's a really sustainable, amazing, high quality replacement to cotton bed sheets.
0: Yeah, this is always the fun one. I've talked to a few different folks who've, you know, Talk, come from different backgrounds and far as like how they chose their startup and the, the venture that they wanted to take on. Some of them almost happened like, Oh, I was just solving this problem. And quite often, especially in, in software and, and right, right. that's an easy one, right? It's like, well, I had a problem. So I built a platform because I need to solve that problem. But choosing a physical implementation of something is always interesting because it, there's way more skin in the game in getting it started versus you can just like, I can build software. It's immediately super high margin, pretty mm, easy mm-hmm. to kind of map costs to lifetime value of a customer. You got it. Yep. But you started building a physical thing, which <laughs> yeah, has not she- just, yeah, it's not even just something like, you're not going to Oberlo and, and like drop shipping stuff. You're legitimately no, no, building no. it from ground up. Yep. So did, how, how did the idea come to you? I'm always curious on, on that one.
1: You know, it's funny. I Truth be told, I did actually look at Oberlo in the very beginning. Um, but, you know, it's just all cheap. No, no offense to Oberlo, an interesting company, but it's just, you know, it's a lot of cheap packaged goods from straight from China. And it's just not what you want to do if you want to actually build a brand and a build, build a company. So yeah, no, we, we actually have partnerships with great contract manufacturers that bring everything to life for us and, um, you know, large volumes and uh, minimum order quantities. And it's really fantastic to um, build your own product and have it from the ground up, be completely yours. Um, so in terms of like how he got started and the idea, um, I think you're exactly right in the sense of a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, they're like, I have this problem. Um, let me build a solution. And they spend years of their life and hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars building this solution that's in their head. Um, and you know, they may find that when they finally release it to the market, the market says, uh, no, thanks. Um or more insidiously, the market says, Yeah, you know, we we'd love to pay uh for this product, but uh we don't want to pay that price. We want to pay a price <laughs> That's pay. right. We want to pay a price that doesn't allow you to make a profitable margin. Um and so it's super uh, you know, I think difficult for a lot of people to do what I did, but uh, you know, in the sense of I built a business model that I felt was extremely uh sustainable, profitable, scalable. Um And I knew I wanted to do a sustainable good uh, because sustainability is a really huge issue for me. And so I kind of worked my way and backed my way into what sustainable product that, and and truth be told, I said, that doesn't require software engineers, doesn't require Bluetooth firmware, industrial design, tooling, plastics. Um, what product can I build that, and, and this is my exact business model, is a in a massive commodities market with zero brand differentiation or loyalty. That is a highly fragmented marketplace that is no market leader that I have to chip away at their market share, low switching costs so I can steal customers, high repeat buy rates so that way I have a new chance every year to steal other companies' customers. And that is largely traditionally physical retail play. So I could bring it online with a direct-to-consumer model. Um, and I literally I wrote that down on a piece of paper, like all these different things. And I learned kind of what I wanted that model to look like from my past experiences. And uh, then I started doing research on different categories. I on, this is the honest to God truth. I owned a bunch of domains. I have a serial domain buyer. And I, own, I, 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 own. A,
0: I, I, I had, I have that fault. I also, <laughs> hello, my name is Eric and I'm a serial domain buyer as well. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we
1: need a, we need a support group to be honest. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I, I own SheetsGiggles.com Uh, cause I thought it'd be a funny name for a sheets company way back when. Um, and I thought does betting fit my criteria and it fit it perfectly, you know, $12 billion market, highly fragmented, no market leader, no uh, loyalty. Every single brand in the space is like, "This is the best cotton you've ever felt," and it's the white sheets with the white walls, the white comforter. There's always a French press coffee placed somewhere on the bed, which I think is a really bad place for a French press coffee. Um, yes, and right, so. their their marketing materials are all the same. It bores me to tears. And I realized, you know, how unsustainable cotton was, and you know, cotton by itself uses uh, per t shirt about twenty five hundred liters of water per bed sheet about four thousand liters of water. Um, it uses as a crop about 16 to 24% of the world's insecticides just by itself as a crop. Um, and so, you know, there's, these are real issues with, with cotton as a crop and um, you know, we use so much of it in this world. And, and so I was really excited to kind of find out, find about this new material. And, um, I was kind of off to the races after, uh, I, it kind of hit me that this was the perfect brand that I was looking for.
0: I'm going to... Immediately pull back on the thing that you said. Of course, as a serial domain buyer myself, <laughs> the reason is usually because you you're probably you're swimming with ideas. Right. How how all how long have you been?
1: Neutling is that something? On this one? Yeah, is
0: that something that happened early? Because I
1: not you know actually it was such a good it was I was so viscerally attached to the idea of starting a company based off of this pun uh, sheets and giggles. <laughs> Um, that I actually bought the domain in like, I think June or May, 2017, and I incorporated the company in October, 2017. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge lag, but that, but that's why you buy them. Right. Is because every time, like, and I, I usually write a business plan for an idea when I have it. And so I actually had, I was watching, um, this is going to sound so lame. Have you ever seen, uh, war dogs with miles Teller and Jonah Hill? Oh no, I have not. (laughs) So it's not, it's not, it's an okay, it's an okay movie. It's fine. Um, but there's a scene in it where Miles Teller's character is in the opening scene. He's like selling bedsheets and he's going door to door to these retirement communities. And I got so frustrated because he couldn't make any sales. And I'm, you know, I'm a biz dev, uh, sales guy by trade and, you know, partnerships and that sort of thing. And I was really upset with his strategy. And I told, you know, my now ex-girlfriend, because who does this? Um, I said, you know this is ridiculous. He didn't. He didn't do a business plan. He doesn't understand his core customer. He bought all this inventory. Had no pricing research. Doesn't understand his consumer. You know what? Pause the movie. And I, I <laughs> and I wrote a, and I wrote a business plan for a bed sheets company that night. Um, and whenever I write a business plan, I always buy a domain for it. And I usually gravitate towards funny names. And I I said, what's a funny name for a bed sheets company? Sheets and giggles. That's a funny name. And so uh, I bought the domain that night. Sheetsgiggles.com. And um, I uh, just kind of kept it in my back pocket. I grabbed a few social handles uh, and then finally it just was the right time to do it uh, about five or six months later.
0: The one thing I I also want to go to the start of, of things because you, you actually launched as well through uh, crowdfunding. So you used IndieGo. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that experience. Uh, was that a, is that something that you immediately thought like this is how I can launch did as an m v p uh did it come as you were developing the business plan when when did it come into play that that indieGogo would be a, a way that you would do your initial go to market
1: um so I, I there it was interesting there was uh, there was basically a um there was basically a kind of diversion in terms of how you or I should say like there's a diverting path in terms of how you're going to found a company. There's different ways to fund it. And so for me, I just knew right off the bat that I wasn't going to uh, raise venture capital, at least right away. My last company that I was a part of, um, I wasn't the CEO. I, you know, I was just on the founding team. We raised uh, millions of dollars and we're on that kind of boom or bust type of timeline. And unfortunately ended up being a bust. Um, and we all got laid off at 1 PM on a Monday, which was very emotionally difficult. And so, uh, I knew right away that I didn't want to get on the VC treadmill again. I didn't want to, uh, have to commit to doing, you know, uh, years and years of my life chasing a massive exit in order to get somebody a large multiple on their money. Um, and so I really, you know, I, and I also was acutely aware that I was starting a company based off a pun. Um, and I didn't think a lot of investors would take it very seriously. So um, I ended up uh, deciding that the best way to do it was to really put my head down and, and, and do a crowdfund, show that people would respond really positively to the sustainability of the YSL, Um and the brand voice itself. Um, and so I pushed uh, really hard. I gathered about um, 11,000 emails, I think, in eight weeks ahead of our Indiegogo crowdfund on May 1st, uh, 2018. And uh, I did that very strategically. I can go into kind of goal setting for crowdfunding and why we chose the goals that we did and how we achieved them. Uh, but that when we raised, I think we raised $284,000 proudest achievement of my entire life is convincing thousands of people to wait five months for bed bedsheets um, on a crowdfunding platform. Uh, you know, we got a ton of interest from investors after that. And, and that was great. And, and it's not like that was the goal. The goal was to go to market completely revenue funded. Um, But from the start, from day one, I knew I wanted this to be a revenue-funded venture and a revenue-funded business, not a venture capital-backed startup that, you know, just burns cash.
0: Yeah, and especially because you're getting into physical manufacturing that, like, being able to bootstrap, you still need that initial outlay versus, again, like, Mm -hmm, if you're mm -hmm. talking about startups or small apps or something like that, it's... You can literally go, to, go on Upwork and you can get it built by a team in, in, in somewhere you know, for, for a handful of dollars relative to the cost of, uh, and so this is the one thing, uh, two things that really jump out at me. Number one, I'm going to pull apart your successful crowdfunding checklist because I'd love to hear that. I know a lot of folks have had a couple of other folks on as well, and they talked about the, the wins and challenges of going through crowdfunding, but I want to talk about the moment. So at 101 on that Monday you get laid off is your mindset i've got a i've got to go do this again but do it differently did you think i i never want to do this again <laughs> i want to go work for a company and get a paycheck like what cuz you'd been through a a failing yeah, a failing yeah. startup right which is yeah. normal sadly this is you're literally part of you know 90% of of companies that don't right that don't, especially venture funded because there's a an incredible requirement to do this hockey stick growth. And, right, right, right. Some, most of the times the revenues are f- way upside down to the injection of input and the valuations don't line up. And if you don't continue to do hockey stick, the your next round of funding suddenly isn't there because you're like, but wait, you know, we're sustainable. Like I don't want sustainable. I want hockey stick. <laughs> like,
1: right, right, right. I'm no, it, it's it's a great question. I think I, the baseline question is like, did I knew I wanted to do this again right away? Or like, what was I thinking when I got laid off? When I got laid off at 1pm on a Monday from a company that I had, you know, I had written the original business plan for that company in 2013. I had watched it, um, you know, kind of incubate and go from my friend's idea to a you know Denver startup week winner. To a tech stars company, to you know, then joining it and raising millions of dollars, going nationwide retail. Um, that you know, that was I was really proud of that company, and uh, and so getting laid off at one p.m. on a Monday was extremely emotionally draining. I, I the first thing we did, to be completely honest, I had, to, I had to wrap up three years worth of partnerships in three hours, which which sucked. Um, but then at four p.m., we all left the office, and uh, I we we went next door to the bar and got pretty tanked to be totally, totally, <laughs> to be totally was. honest. So, you know, that was kind of the, kind of the, the first thing that we did. Um, and then that night the, uh, you know, the, the Marlins were in town. I'm, I'm from South Florida. The Mar- I'm a Marlins fan, unfortunately. Um, and they were in town to play the Rockies and me and a few of my ex coworkers went to, uh, the game and, uh, I was sitting there, we were drinking beers and I, and there's probably about 10 of us. And I just kept telling them, I kept telling them like, I got this idea that i would had for a few months about this bedding company. It's called Sheets and Giggles <laughs> and I kept telling them about it and they thought I was nuts. Um, and, and I probably, well, I probably lost my mind a little bit to be honest when I started this company. Um, but you know, the, the, the considerations were, I'm going to do one of two things. I'm going to go back. I moved to Denver from Seattle for my last company. So I, I had a great life in Seattle. I love living out there. I love my friends out there. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm going to move back to Seattle. I'm going to go work for Amazon. I'm going to get a very stable job with good healthcare with a good salary. And I'm going to put some money away. I'm going to forget the startup dream and the startup lifestyle. And I'm just going to like do the normal, you know, career trajectory thing. And maybe I'll start a company in 10 years. Um, and the other option was all the way in the polar opposite, which is start my own company that I own 100% of. Uh, because I decided that there was never going to be a middle ground for me ever after that, there was never going to be a, you know, uh, work for somebody else's startup type middle ground, because you don't really get meaningful equity. You don't control the outcomes. You don't control the exit. You don't control the negotiations, the investing, uh, that, you know, you may not control the strategy. Um, and you know, you're being asked, generally speaking at a startup to take a lower than market salary with lower than market benefits. Um, for the potential equity upside, but it's all a crapshoot. And I don't like the founders that dangle the equity options uh, in front of people as you know this big, big you know potential hook. Um, I like founders that are a little more honest about it. Uh, and so I tell my employees, you know, hey, your options in this company, everybody has equity in SG, but you know, I tell them you may or may not see a return on this. Here's how your options work, and here's what you should expect. And I make sure that everybody's paid market rate and that we have good benefits. Um, and so, you know, like for me, it was going to be one or the other. And I just decided that at this point in my life, I had really good mentor network, really good investor network. I knew people in Colorado. That's where my, most of my professional network was at that point. I had a really good, uh, cabal of retail partners that if I wanted to end up branching out into physical retail, I could always approach them. I had consultants that I had worked with at my last company on product and marketing and PR side. Um, and so I just, I kind of put all the pieces together from my last company where I wasn't the CEO and I was just head of biz dev to, you know, now being my own CEO and the questions that I just had was if I could do it all over again, what would I do differently? And the number one thing was start with a business plan that you felt very, very, very strongly about build a financial model that showed profitable, scalable margins, and then go from there and and build the product and sell it before you ever end up building it.
0: Did the fact that you're at uh, that you're watching the Rockies decide where you were going to plant this company? Uh, <laughs> it was it was funny when you picked the team. I'm like that's well, purely purely coincidence, I'm sure. But
1: yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I I I, I don't know. I, I think that it was just one of those it was just one of those serendipitous things where it all kind of came together to be a Colorado company. Like we're you know we we love it out here. We're we a pledge one percent company. Um, which I would encourage anybody listening who has their own company. To be a a pledge 1% company, we pledge 1% of our equity, our profits, our time, and our products um, to local Colorado charities that we choose. Um, So if we get an exit, then Colorado charities get 1% of that exit, which is awesome. Uh, And, you know, we're also, we donate sheets to homeless shelters uh, in the Denver area. Uh, We try to employ mostly folks that are in Colorado and in the Denver area, local people, we buy local um, you know, we warehouse locally for most of our, our beginning. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's been a lot of fun to be a Colorado company and, and th- this community out here is just so damn supportive. Like everybody out here is so helpful. It's not like a cutthroat startup community, like in New York or San Francisco or Seattle, um, very, very collaborative out here.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that the there's, there's sort of very stylistic, not that every business that starts in each region is like that, but it's funny. We've got this vision of like the Silicon Valley super, you know, it's all like monstrously vendor-backed, aiming to be unicorns. Uh, my company is a boston based startup uh, built for profitability from day one like the the, the the East Coast startups tend to be much more around stability and and building a sustainable company uh, Colorado same thing I know a few companies that are that are based in in denver and, and and in the area, and they very much focused on that beauty of this West coast relaxed lifestyle but aimed for sustainability in in running a good business. And you get the bit like you're close enough to the Seattle crowd that you can pick up some really smart uh, you know people and, and developers and stuff and it's a very I love the freedom of that West Coast thinking, but the sustainable approach of the east coast mentality it, and it's funny that colorado tends to just like have that perfect landing uh maybe it's the altitude uh something really cool there uh but i just i love the lifestyle it's and yeah it's,
1: it, it all comes together you know it's all it's it's uh, and the lifestyle part of it's good i will say people uh, people in denver and this is no knock on my team at all because my team is definitely the hardest working team in colorado but you know, uh, at I had other companies I've, I've met and looked at, I will say a lot of people do move here for that, like lifestyle, you know, you're close to the mountains, ski weekends, they want to cu- shove off at four on a Friday, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, they work from home a couple days a week. And that's why we, we have a, a totally free remote work from home policy at, at sheets and giggles. We, you know, we let people work from home any day of the week they want and it's unlimited and you can travel and work from Rome if you want. Um, you know, we say why work from home when you can work from Rome. There you uh, go <laughs> and uh and so you know it's a it's um I think it's just a really progressive place, and with the younger you know employees and audience as well, people just kind of have this expectation for a certain work life balance and I mean hell, as long as everybody's doing their job i I really could care less, but um it's definitely a little more laid back place
0: now the it The one thing that you picked uh, in the the discussion around, you know, you want to make sure you were, you're obviously driving the outcomes and you wanted to make sure that you were sort of leading the ship. Clearly you wanted to have the most sort of equity value and also the equity responsibility in what you were doing, which is good. It's a beautiful pairing. And a lot of people don't get that. They're like, Oh wow. So you get the biggest buyout. Like they think that you're, that everybody's like Zuckerberg, like they want to own it for control. Like, well, they also own the responsibility, which is, it's a, a lot of people don't get that. They're like, this is a very challenging responsibility that you're building a company to sustain other people, and right. their, their lifestyle and their healthcare and their things. So based on the fact that you had this founding team at your previous uh, you know, startup, and now here you are, how important was how you create the team environment for new people when you- um.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It's it's actually interesting because at my last company we I was not, like I said, not president, not CEO. I I wasn't responsible for any of the culture pieces or anything like that. Um so I learned a little bit about what I liked and what I didn't like about what the the you know culture was at that company. Um I will say that one of my weaknesses as a CEO, I think, is that organizational piece around now that i'm responsible for other human beings working 40 or 50 hours a week on my idea and my company um i don't i i haven't done a very good job but i think of transitioning into that more managerial um you know deliberator uh you know assigner type of ceo i'm still much more of a hands-on ceo i drive a lot of value at least i try to um i do all of our brand work all of our a lot of our marketing work uh around the brand voice and around the creative and the content. Um, You know, we just hired a full-time content manager. So I'm working with him on making sure that our brand voice, uh, you know, evolves and and moves in the right direction from where I started it. Um, So, yeah, so I think that that's the, that's the piece that like is is the most challenging for me. Um, I will say that the biggest things that I've taken from my last company are uh, reward people for doing good work without them asking. We give raises and bonuses to people without them ever having to lift a voice um for that uh i think that people feel extremely validated in their work when they're financially rewarded without having to ask for it um we uh, have a very transparent culture everybody knows our revenues everybody knows our costs everybody knows um you know our profitability or lack of thereof from month to month um and they know the money that we have at the bank and, and the runway in front of us and and why our goals are what they are in order to make sure that the company uh, continues to succeed and grow and, and grow profitably. Uh, and so that transparency, that openness is really important to me. And then I'd say the last piece that, that I really took from my last company is there was a, a story that I, that I tell that I, I never, I'll never forget where I was working probably probably about like 16 hours a day at my last company. And I w- I would, you know, get in at about 10 AM and I would just work until probably two or three in the morning in the office. And then I lived right across the street. So I would walk across the street and I just pass out for, you know, seven or six hours. Uh, and then I would wake up at, you know, 9 AM shower, get dressed, come in at 10 do it again. I'm not a morning person. I'm a night owl. And you know, my, my CEO sat down with me and uh, she was my manager and she said, Hey, you know, some of the people on the team are, are complaining that it seems like you have a special privilege where you're getting in later than they are. Uh, and I, (laughs) I said, well, did you tell them to shove it up your ass? <laughs> 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 and, and, uh, and, she, and she said, no, you know, I, I told them I understood the complaint because we require everybody to get in at 8.30 and you're getting in at 10. And, you know, we need you to come in at 8.30. And I said, well, I, I'm not a big morning person. I'm working till 2 a.m. every night. I said, why don't you invite them to come join me in the office after 5 p.m.? Because they sure as shit are leaving at 5.15 every single day. And, and you know, they, we got into a big fight. And finally I said, okay, I'll be in, I'll be in at 8.30. And from then on I was in at 8 thirty and I was out at 5 pm on the dot every single day so they lost about seven hours of productivity from me every single day and I'm one of those people that can work twelve to sixteen hours without losing much productivity and you know that was really frustrating and emotional for me, but I, I followed my orders and it cost the company I think a lot in productivity and so I think that that type of narrow focus where you know you're more concerned about perception than reality and you're more concerned about you know, uh, having the appearance that people are equal or on the same footing or whatever it is in the company, instead of, you know, being more direct with people and telling them like, look, you know, he can come in whenever the hell he wants, because he's, you know, literally doing work until midnight at the office, like every single night. Um, And so I try to do that with my own employees, like if they, you know, I'll never chide anybody for coming in late, I'll never chide anybody for leaving early, if they got to go take their dog to the vet, or, fly home to see their family or take a vacation or whatever it is totally good as long as their work's getting done they're being productive
0: yeah and it's it's interesting i had a i had a really good friend fellow that i worked with we were roommates for years and and then i worked i got a corporate gig right i finally got a real <laughs> job and and then i actually uh helped to get him uh i think i may have sort of connected him for an interview uh he definitely earns his gig got in there and and there was a point at uh, you know, I'd watch him work at this other small startup and and he had the sort of same thing of like he he would roll into like 11 and then but he would work and he would stay there really late. Yeah, work on you know, the weekends and yeah. like you kill, you're killing yourself. And sadly, I I didn't I I even kind of had a go at him a couple times. I'm like, dude, you gotta you gotta be careful because like when you get when I get you into this like corporate gig, they're a nine to five type of shop, and so they won't get it. Right. And And it was real, but he was, he was able to do it very well. And I mistakenly really kind of like set him up as like, this is not good what you're doing. And, and it's funny, like years later, now he has his own company. He's got like 20 employees. They just hired their first CEO doing amazing. And inevitably he's probably working way more hours than he ever did in any single day at any other gig. But I, I failed to recognize and, and support what he was doing, because I was kind of wrapped into the like, I've been told this is how I kind of need to be when I'm at this joint. Right. And and then realizing like, no. And then from that point on, when I sort of listened more to what was being successful with other companies and other people that were, you know, changing their roles inside organizations, I became much more like that. Like I was still there at eight, but I would work in the evenings differently and I would work and I started to change my approach learning from him and I I only wish I I hope I ever, you know, thanked him for teaching me that the hours that you're in the office are the hours that you're working and as a result of me choosing a very startup and entrepreneurial like mentality my job changed incredibly my teamwork and changed it like i changed roles and got upgraded and raises and changed. it was phenomenal and from that point on it, it it changed the way that i approached everything and it was it was a good lesson but sadly if i had stuck to that like mm, sorry you're you should be working you know you, you know, other people are noticing you're not here till 11 like yeah his stuff's getting done and whatever
1: uh, so it's
0: well. It's also, it's it's also it,
1: you know. It's in the other the other thing. The other the corollary of that is that you know you give people as much work as you can give them, and you and you watch how they respond to it. Because there's some people that you know. And when, I, when I was 23 years old, I I was a recruiter. I was a tech tech recruiter. Actually, I started my career at a company called Bridgewater Associates, which is the world's largest hedge fund. Um, oh, and, oh my goodness. going to say, um, <laughs> I, I,
0: I know it very, very well as a, oh, yeah. a 12-time reader of principles. principles I studied yeah, I studied, were, I studied, the, Dalio. I
1: studied Dalio's methods for a long yeah. time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's an interesting guy. Um, that's a whole other podcast I could talk about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, I got fired from there in like six months because I was terrible at my job. Um, and the culture was just not for me. Uh at least in the, in the practice of it and in, in theory, it sounds great. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so, you know, I was kind of up a creek without a paddle first job out of school. I, I thought I had made it the world's largest hedge fund. Um, and, uh, and so I ended up becoming a recruiter at the company that uh, hired me there ironically. And so I ended up recruiting for about, I mean, within my first year as a recruiter, I had 15 accounts. Some of them were the biggest banks in the world that you'd recognize. Can't say who they are. Uh, some of them were, you know, venture capital backed startups that are now doing great. Um, others of them were small businesses, and uh, I was mostly hiring software engineers. I knew nothing about software, nothing about, uh, you know, banking software, or like you know why they would need a C sharp candidate versus a C plus plus candidate or anything like that. And so I basically had to teach myself all the background information about the different tools and why they were why they were powerful for this and not so much for that, and understand, you know, how to talk in different. Um, you know, different uh, styles to to talk to different types of engineers. And uh, my my boss at the time, a guy named Michael, who I, who I love, he's one of my good mentors. He didn't see a 23-year-old kid who had never done recruiting and who had gotten fired from his first job in six months. He, you know, he saw someone who was really hungry to prove themselves and who was upset at how the first job went and had, you know, the, at least the ability and the work ethic to um, you know, apply himself and become a good recruiter and within six months, I was managing five other people at the recruiting firm. I had fifteen clients that I was all the direct account manager for, and I was hiring multiple software engineers every single month. Um, and it was you know not because I was blanket emailing a thousand people at a time on LinkedIn, but because I was taking calls from candidates at midnight and because I was sourcing people on LinkedIn at two am and I was sending the messages at four AM knowing that it would be the first thing in their inbox when they woke up in the morning. Um, and I was like, I was doing all these things that were just like insane. My, my colleagues would call me the recruiting vampire is what they they, (laughs) they'd have so many emails in their inbox when they woke up from me and you know, I wasn't doing it to impress anybody. I was doing it to make sure I was successful at my second job. And you know, I ended up catching the eye of one of my clients and that was the first startup that ever hired me was they said, Hey, we've got this biz dev role we love working with you and we think you'd be great in the biz dev role. Uh, Do you want to leave recruiting and come work for us in Seattle? And so I moved from Connecticut to Seattle in 2014 for that position. And you know, that was, that was, I think a big momentous change in my career and life trajectory was um, applying myself in a role that is now no longer super relevant for what I do. Although as a CEO, the fact that I've got hiring experience and recruiting experience is super crucial, but it's also the fact of like the amount of work that was given to me as a 23 year old with no discernible skills, and was told to me to just figure it out, like people will respond in different ways to that. Some people will shut down and they'll say, you know, I don't know what I'm doing and I need help. And and that's just fine, it's not a bad thing. And and then other people will just respond and go into a different mode. And, and that's what I love to see from my coworkers and my employees is like, who's actually um, responding positively to being overworked and who is actively, you know, uh, complaining about being overworked. And luckily, it's mostly the former.
0: Yeah, well, you have a choice, right? It's you, you can avoid the situation, or you, it's, it's how you deal with it. It's like you're, you can't avoid conflict, you can, you can choose the way in which you deal with it. And it's funny, I had a recent situation where somebody had had difficulty at, at an organization I was at. And and I said, hey, you know, I can understand why, you know, it got, really got a sort of a tough bit of a brow beating in front of like 10 people in the room. And it was a whole, it was a tough thing to watch, right? And, and it right. was, I, I th- as it's going on, I'm thinking of a thousand ways it could have been dealt with better and why it shouldn't have happened in that way, but it did. And it was funny talking with somebody and I said, I can understand, you know, I haven't been in that position. And the fellow that I worked with, he's like, dude, you have been, it's it's a matter of how you chose to deal with it that changed your outlook. And I was like, oh, and then you look back in your mind, you're like, oh boy, yeah, I do remember having difficult situations, was given complete freedom, and thus complete responsibility. And and I made a choice in how I dealt with it. So it's good that, yeah, at 23, you can get people just drop it on you. And in a way, it's a, it's a lot of a test. And building your, your, your team, as well as you build S&G, it's about look, I'm going to give you a lot of responsibility. I'm assuming that you effectively treat them like you would want to be treated. And then you watch how they react. You support them in, in how they need to. and
1: Right. And, 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 you know, I'm not trying to kill anybody with overwork. It's more of, you know, I, I think that like there's no risk to giving people more work than they can handle. The only risk is that you have to hire somebody else. The, right. you know, the, the downside is of idle time much, much, much outweighs, the downside of somebody feeling a little bit stretched too thin. And, you know, and then you tell people like, Hey, when you feel like you're stretched way too thin, you got to let me know, and we'll hire somebody else. But I love people that like, just will be so comfortable with a to do list of a 1000 things. And, you know, have the the autonomy, and the gumption to really take it on themselves. Those are the type of people that I want to work with. Um, and people that are comfortable with ambiguity, people that are goal oriented, I think that that's, you know, to, to pivot into like, one of Bridgewater's core principles of task orientation versus goal orientation. So many people have goal task confusion. And I think that that's the thing that killed me the most about my, my last company again, not to speak ill of anybody I work with. I loved all my coworkers, but we had such task goal confusion sometimes where people would get so attached to a certain way of doing things or a certain feature or a certain, you know, uh, uh, you know, strategy or whatever it was. And for me, my whole thing was, look, the goal is to make X million dollars of revenue this year. It's completely irrelevant how we achieve that goal. Those are all just tasks. So, you know, if you want to tell me halfway through, you know, training 100 stores that actually my time is better spent hiring 10 interns and then training them and having them go out and train 10 stores, I'm not going to get emotionally attached to the fact that I've got this sunk cost in the 50 stores that I've already trained. And I'm going to need to, you know, spend the time on this new version of it. I'm not just going to keep chugging along. I'm going to say, hey, that makes sense. Let me go do that. Or if one feature doesn't make sense for our audience, and another feature ends up building us into a new channel, into a new audience, and opening up a new line of business, um, then maybe we should build that feature, even though it's not part of our core feature set or whatever it is, and it's and it's something slightly different. And so I think that that's also a thing that really drives me crazy with people is task goal confusion. So I've really tried to you know, really beat it into, to my coworkers at S and G that, you know, the goal is to build a successful um, long-term uh, company that lasts a long time that makes, you know, many, many, and thousands of people happy. Um, and however we do that is completely irrelevant. Like we can pivot into a new category tomorrow and I'd be happy with it if it achieved our goal better. Um, you know, I, and, and there's obviously limits to that. Like re, there's realistic limits to that. Um, but you know, we, we were going to move forward with, um, you know, some new product lines this year, for example, and we had spun up a few different manufacturing partners around those lines. And, you know, about a month ago, I decided, you know what, it's actually not the best decision for us to, to pivot into these new product lines this quickly, because we've got too small of a team. We're going to split focus too much. Let's go ahead and, and bring it back and really focus on our core products and make sure that we're really excelling in this, in this, you know, specific space. Um, and I, what I loved about it is that I didn't get one peep from my team about the work that they had already done in that other direction about the thing, the content and the manufacturing relationships and the, you know, customer service prep and all the other things that we had done. Instead, they said, you know what, that actually makes sense. Um, we like the focus. Let's, let's pull back and do this. And I love that because it was completely unemotional even though it could have been really ugly in terms of like, well, you know, you wasted all this time going in this other direction, yada, yada, yada. That's not a productive conversation.
0: Yes. It's a, it's the interesting challenge of choosing it. It's sort of like a stoic approach to it. It's like, don't get attached to the, to the task, but to the goal and and the goal is the company goal and the company goal is to create sustainable, a sustainable business using sustainable products and sustainable approaches and spreading yourself too thin not sustainable. You, 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 know, if you go back to the core vision, it, it plays out that way. Exactly. But speaking of tasks, I, I don't mean to pull you into a task thing. I don't mean to, to give a, an immediate Indiegogo lesson, but I'd no, love no. to hear your, you talked about the email list. And so people who are about to start up and they say, Hey, I've got an idea for a product. I'm <laughs> going to go, I'm, I'm firing up my Kickstarter tonight. And <laughs> first thing is like, no, 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 no. It, before oh you're God. ready to launch, you have this huge runway. What were some of the steps that you had that made it so that when you launched, you were actually ready to go?
1: So I think, I think you're going to want to bookmark this minute and tell, <laughs> tell, tell, tell people to skip all the other fluff and, and nonsense because this is my favorite thing to talk about. Um, but So basically, uh, <clears throat> you're exactly right. Everybody and their mother uh, thinks that they're going to do a Kickstarter or they're going to put it online. This is such a great idea. It's so obvious. Like, why has nobody done this before? We're going to make a million dollars. I've seen people make million dollars on Kickstarter. Like, let's go, let's go do this. Um, and then 8, 8,000 other pro- projects launched that day. Nobody ever sees your project. You make $35, your friends and family didn't buy it. Uh, and even if they did, I mean, what are you going to have? Like 50 friends and family maximum spend a hundred dollars each for $5,000. Like you can't start a company like that. Um, and so people don't understand the mechanics of a crowdfunding campaign. And so, what we uh, did was thank. Thankfully, I had I had had crowdfunding experience at my last job, um, where that was my first time at my last job with my with my coworkers at that place, and that was a kind of a disaster. We had like thirty people working on the crowdfund and we ended up doing like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a crowdfunding campaign, which I, we ended up doubling that with a team of two um, for sheets and giggles. Uh, and so uh, the, what we learned. Was a number of things. First and foremost, uh, just working backwards from goal setting. So let's say that you want to do a $100,000 Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Um, that is literally just a function of the price per perk multiplied by the amount of people that ended up buying it. And so if you want to do $100,000 and your average unit price is $70, and, which was what our average unit price was at the time, and you assume that people are going to buy 1.5 units on average that means the average order value is going to be $100, give or take. So if you want a $100,000 goal, uh, and generally speaking with crowdfunding math, you need to get 30% of your entire goal in the first 24 hours. That's how the math works. Huge boost in the first 24 hours, discoverability, homepage, that sort of thing. And then it tails off, and then you have a little bit of a boost at the end. So that means if we want to do $100,000, and we want $30,000 in the first day to get 30% of that, and we know our average unit price or average order value is going to be about a hundred bucks, then that means that on the first day we need 300 customers. And we know that for a crowdfunding campaign, almost all of your day one customers are going to come from your email list and then people discovering you organically on kickstarter.com or indiegogo.com. And so I didn't want to leave anything to chance. I said, I'm going to assume that nobody discovers us on those websites. So if we want 300 customers on day one, an email list reasonably converts at about 3%, 2% if you're doing a bad job, 4% if you're doing a good job, and then 1% if you're terrible, 5% if you're amazing. And so I said, so if we want 300 customers day one, that means we need 10,000 emails of interested qualified leads, period, end of story, blinders on, that's what we're going to go get. And so starting in February, 2018, January, we spent a lot of time building the site and the logos and the, and the visuals and that sort of thing. February, we did our photo shoot. Uh, And then starting in late February, we put up a really simple landing page with a company called Kickoff Labs, super cheap. Uh, We had a Shopify store set up to link to it, Google analytics so we could track everything. And we literally ran a few hundred dollars worth of Facebook ads to see how many emails we could gather out of a thousand visitors and what you know, type of percentage email capture we would get, what our cost per lead was. And once you got your cost per lead, you can work backwards to your cost of acquisition at a 3% conversion rate. And so we ended up gathering emails in that first week at a 38% clip, which is absolutely crazy for a consumer company. Um, anything over 10% is good, anything over 20% is kind of unheard of. Um, and so we ended up uh, over the course of eight weeks, captured 11,000 emails at like a 46% conversion rate um optimized all of our landing pages, did a bunch of a b testing and improvements. and uh, we ended up spending less than ten thousand dollars to get those leads, which was great. Uh, and then day one, sure enough, our email list we we had prepped them a couple weeks ahead of time, given them a couple teasers. And then day one, we pushed it live. We got our first orders before we ever, <laughs> before we ever sent it live because we had people refreshing the page, waiting on it. Um, <laughs> nice. It was great. It was amazing. And then we ended up converting our email list day one. Sure enough, at about four uh, percent, we got four hundred and fifty backers day one, and it was just like it was like clockwork. It was incredible. And we ended up getting forty five thousand dollars day one and two hundred eighty four thousand dollars over the course of the campaign. Um, so a slightly higher multiple than that, like thirty percent type of take. Um, because we had some press boosts, uh, but overall, it was exactly the way we wanted day one to go.
0: It's a uh, and the funny thing is, like the the percentages work out, and the numbers are there. And these are these are core lessons that. It, and the more you you go through this with people who've started these ideas and companies and do email lists and everything, you always want to tell them like these numbers work fundamentally. And like you said, if you do five percent on an email conversion. It's like, holy heck, what did you do? That's awesome. And you're like, most people look at you, wait, what? I mean 95 people didn't even open it right, <laughs> you know, or, right. or whatever. You're like, no, 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 you get 30% open rate, you get 5% conversion and you've done something amazing. If you do 3%, you're on the money. That's average. If you do 1%, something's wrong, maybe change your opener, do some AB testing. Right. And it's, and it's funny that you know, you, I'll say funny. So interesting. I never say, <laughs> not funny, peculiar, not funny. Ha ha, it's funny. How am I funny? You're like, wow, like what am yeah, I? Yeah. Yeah. But to to have approached it with the science and the business behind it, instead of like you said, I've got this amazing idea. I'm going to fire up a logo and people are going to sign up. And I'm all I got to do is get my first hundred backers and life is good. Like, first of all, when you ask people like, well, how many backers do you plan to get? Right. Uh, well, I know I need to, you know, I'm going to put it at 12,000. <laughs> and what's your, what, what are your perk layouts? Okay, good. So like, what's, like you said, what's your cost per person, per perk, work the averages. Know what it, well, bro, there, there's, right?
1: there's, We could do multiple podcasts on, there's perk strategy, there's pricing strategy, there's, um, you know, content strategy, uh, site layout, mobile optimization, um, there are a couple of different things around brand validity and bar validity and how you're going to make sure people think that you're a real company and not some charlatan. Um, there are, uh, you know, different th- strategies and theories around shipping and around international orders versus domestic. Um, you know, they, like this crowdfunding campaign is a huge endeavor. Um, and it's not something, that, you know, you, I think that people need minimum eight weeks of prep and probably 10 to 12 is a sweet spot. Um, and most people don't give it that, that amount of time. Um, you know, there's, there's entire blog posts you can read around which day of the week to launch it, which day of the month, yeah. um, you know, like which month of the year. Like there, there's so many, you know, wh- when are you going to be shipping? You know, okay, well, people are going to be willing to wait in this category six months, but in this category 12 months or in this category three months. Like, there, so there's, there's so much that goes into a crowdfunding campaign. And, you know, I, I I think that, uh, there's people that really excel at it. My, one of my good buddies, I'll give him a shout out. His name's Tommy. He's the CEO of a company called secret Hitler. Um, not sure if you ever played that board game, uh, but they did a million dollar plus Kickstarter and he, you know, he does board games on Kickstarter for a living that's, he loves it. Like, and he, and he makes new board games all the time. Um, and, uh, secret Hitler is probably the most famous one. Uh, And so, you know, he and I, we collaborated a little bit on this in the sense of he gave me some feedback uh, a couple nights before we went live about our page structure and layout and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's, 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 everything is so, so crucial when it comes to that conversion rate. Um, And we ended up converting on Indiegogo about three times the average Indiegogo campaign uh, in terms of the conversion rate. And so I was really, really proud to see that. And I think that 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 was one of the reasons we knew we were on to something.
0: Now, the I, I always I always love to do sort of the closing. I would ask you, you know, top books you've read, uh, you know, all sorts of sort of lightning round things. But the, one of the things I I like to ask, and it's totally stolen. It's like a Tim Ferriss question or something. Is uh, what what's the worst thing that's happened to you that you're most thankful for? And I'm gonna say <laughs> that one one o'clock that Monday was probably pretty close on the list. But uh, <laughs> what else prepared you for? what you knew to be your future success is whether you felt it at that time or not
1: um oh man i guess worse things happened to me not in the context of the business um that helped that i'm thankful for is uh, i think uh when i was 24 25 living in seattle i had a a four year five year relationship end um and at the time it was you know it was fairly devastating um and i remember <laughs> I flew to Florida, uh, for, I think holidays that year. And I, you know, I met up with my, my ex, we had only been broken up for a couple months. And, uh, I basically told her that, uh, uh, I, you know, I wanted to get back together and I wanted to move to Florida and be with my family and get a job at, uh, <laughs> my big plan was to get a job at Citrix in Fort Lauderdale.
0: Nice. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, Jesus. Um, and, uh, and she said, no, and, you know, we're still good friends to this day and we, and we stay in touch and I am so freaking glad she said no. Um, because if she, I was devastated at the time I was like, I was like just beside myself. Um, but you know, now, uh, looking back, that was such a formative, important moment for me because it forced me to stay in Seattle, finish some unfinished business put a chip on my shoulder. I said, okay, well, if I'm going to go through this heartbreak, then I'm going to make it worthwhile. Cause you know, the original breakup was so that way we could focus on our career goals. She got into dental school. I had my startup career. And so, you know, I ended up taking the chance, moving to Denver for this other company going through tech stars, taking my salary was like $1,600 a month. When I started learning a, a huge, huge amount um, and then eventually, directly led into me founding my own company and and being where I am now, um, which is still far away from what I would consider a you know quote unquote success. But it, it's it's definitely a dramatically different path than I would have taken if she had simply said, you know what, yeah, like let's let's get back together. Which was a you know it was a it was a very I think close coin flip between one of those two directions. Um, and uh, so yeah, definitely one of those things that. That uh, super life-changing in retrospect.
0: It and I love the, the sixteen hundred dollars a month. I always love when you tell people like <laughs> I work for I work for a startup and they're like Wow, it must be that was before <laughs>
1: that was before taxes. That was I know. <laughs> yeah, you're
0: like, you must be must be living the dream. Like oh yeah, <laughs> living the dream. You're like no, no, you don't understand. Like equity is worthless.
1: Man, until I work. I worked. Of an exit. <laughs> I worked. I worked on S and G without a paycheck for fifteen months. I started in October 2017. And I was on Cobra for 18 months. Cobra sucks, by the way. I was going on a tirade. <laughs> tirade about the healthcare system in this country, but, uh, but, um, you know, I was on Cobra for 18 months. I didn't take a paycheck for 15 months and, uh, I started paying myself in February, 2018. So that was, that was really special when I, when I finally got to do that.
0: There's, uh, a persistence that you've taught yourself that most people could could take lessons on and uh yeah truth like i said at the start colin i i could literally talk all day to you As somebody who's dabbled with the i'm i'm preparing for a kickstarter campaign and i'm doing i'm taking the advice you you gave uh, uh amongst others that i've gotten which is i'm ready to go now which means i'm actually going to launch in six to seven months because well, I, I, I yeah. there's, there's a lot yeah. to do and You know, these are lessons that I hope the people listen to what we just said and, and, you know, literally could have a notepad beside them, uh, whether it's in the startup, whether it's in the relationship, whether it's, you know, whatever they want to do next. So I'm actually,
1: funny enough, I'm actually writing a white paper, not a white paper, it's probably going to be five pages, um, about like the front to back crowdfunding strategy um, and all the common mistakes and and different kind of strategies that we discussed about everything from. How do you set your original goal to pricing strategy, to content, to uh, customer engagement and, um, you know, uh, preparation and execution and then delivery. And so I'm going to be writing. I'm about to start that. um, So I'd love to share it with you and get your feedback on it uh, when it's done in probably a, a few weeks or a month.
0: Nice. We should start a, a crowdfunding campaign to uh, fund that. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know when I'm going to find the time to do it, but it's one of my new year's, my new year's resolutions because I keep getting people asking me for crowdfunding advice and I give it to them freely, but it's not scalable to have like the one-on-one conversations. So I wanted to just get it all out on paper and, and share it uh, with the world.
0: Yeah. Well, you've, you've got a, you've got a lot of profound lessons that you've, you've sunk it into a young soul. Uh, you've, <laughs> you're, you're the, you've, you've, you've done a lot and, and Colin for that. Thank you for sharing the time with me today. Uh, for folks that want to get a hold of you want to learn more about you with Sheets and Giggles and and the rest of your story, uh, what's the best place to send people if they wanted to get out and
1: get in touch with you? I'm, I'm easy to find. I chose, I chose a brand name and Sheets and Giggles. That is, uh, the easiest thing possible for SEO. So if you, uh, if you look for Colin, uh, Sheets and Giggles, you'll find me, Colin McIntosh. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, I can't promise I'll answer emails. I've got 2,500 on red right now. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I'm happy to lend advice whenever I have free time. Um, and uh, yeah, sheetsgiggles.com is the website. We're on Amazon as well. I think we've got 300 plus reviews on Amazon now, four and a half stars. If anybody's looking for some bed sheets, uh, sheets of giggles, eucalyptus bedsheets, sheets. would love for you to uh, try them out yourself. And if I can ever be helpful to anybody in the audience, uh, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or, or via email.
0: Well, hopefully you'll be uh, among my first set of sponsors. I'd be happy to evangelize oh, be great. the brand, man. It's uh, I, and again, I appreciate what you're doing. That uh, sustainability is obviously it's it's a, a profound benefit. Um, the fact that you're giving back, uh, we didn't even get into Good Business Colorado. Well, uh, I mean, we yeah, well, there's that's a ton a, more. Quick uh, plug uh,
1: if you don't mind. Quick plug yeah, yeah. on um, we just uh, last month. Um, the Australian wildfire is really, really bad for koalas. We, just, we donated um, about 20 grand to uh, the World Wildlife Fund. There's a lot of really great organizations in Australia. We don't, we don't harvest our eucalyptus trees from Australia. We have them on biodiverse farms in, in India and South Africa and a few other countries. Um, but you know, uh, in terms of what's actually happening in Australia right now, um, definitely near and dear to our hearts just from an environmental perspective. Um, and from an you know, uh, ecological impact perspective, a lot of animals, um, I think last check was like only half a billion animals have, have died in the fires. Um, and so World Wildlife Fund, uh, really awesome charity. We've donated, I think $17,000 the final tally um, through our community. And, and so we'd love uh, if anybody else in the audience was to contribute, um, you know, definitely consider throwing in 20 bucks or, or 50 bucks or something. Um, and I, I think 50 bucks is the cost it takes to save a koala. Um, so you can make a really tangible difference.
0: Nice. Yeah. And, uh, definitely for folks that are out there that want to, want to catch up on this, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll definitely, we'll stay connected on a bunch of things. Uh, we'll do a follow-up cause I, I want to dive a bit more into some of these sort of we had some good tangents I would love to have pulled another hour out of. We'll do that sure. uh, in future uh, and for other folks. Of course, if you want to hear this and more, please do go to iTunes. Uh, give us a rating. Uh, stars are always welcome, especially if they're five at a time. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you love it, great. If you don't, send us an email. You can always reach me. I'm at DiscoPosti on Twitter. Uh, easy to. My DMs are open. Always good to get feedback. And for folks, again, follow the story of Colin uh, Sheets and giggles. We'll have lots of links in the show notes and uh, look forward to uh, getting a chance to chat again soon.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Hey everybody, it's again. Grab and, and Daddy, your friends. Put on your head.